Hi, you've reached the Decarb Connect podcast and my name is Alex Cameron. We are still on week two of our little pause in podcast recordings and next week we will be starting a fresh series, season two. Um, this week I wanted to profile one of our top performing podcasts to date, which takes a kind of interesting view from the perspective of a hedge fund leader on whether ESG funds are having the right impact by which we mean, are they able to fund the hard to abate route to net zero? Can they play a role in that? Will Thompson from Massive Capital joins me for this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And next week, we'll be back with a brand new episode. So join us then. Well, I'm very, very pleased to be welcoming uh, Will Thompson, Managing Partner of Massive Capital today. Hello, Will. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And today we're going to be taking a look at uh, ESG scores, cost of capital, and really taking a look at industrial decarbonisation from the perspective of you know, how we're going to go about funding the capex that's needed. Now, before we jump into that, could you just give us a little bit of background on you, um, the business, and also I know you've done a recent report into this space. So, so give us the background before we go into the, the questions around this. Massive Capital, is a, uh, we're a value-oriented hedge fund. Um, but we invest specifically in, I mean, frankly, most of the difficult to decarbonize industries with a view towards uh, supporting companies that are either uh, transitioning from a carbon intensive business uh, to a low sort of carbon business or enable sort of the, the broader transitions, whether it be a copper company or a Vestas wind turbine company. And so uh, we've been up and running for about five years and sort of trying to push this sort of investment thesis that while uh, a lot of ESG funds uh, are certainly interesting um, and one can't complain about investing in sort of inherently low carbon businesses, uh, there is a desperate need for investors that are supportive of management teams that are attempting to take carbon heavy businesses and transition them to low carbon businesses. So we've written a a paper recently, uh, a couple of months ago, that came out that looked specifically at the question of, you know, sort of how much impact are a lot of ESG ETFs uh, or ESG funds really having? And the end conclusion uh, of the paper uh, was basically that most ESG ETFs or ESG funds are heavily concentrated in information technology, healthcare, businesses that while they certainly should continue their efforts at decarbonization uh, themselves don't necessarily do a lot of environmental harm uh, and their efforts don't necessarily you know move the bar significantly uh, towards this this goal of of broader economic wide decarbonization and that means you know investors like myself uh, we need to focus on investing in management teams and companies at steel firms, chemical uh, manufacturers that are trying to continue to produce their products they currently produce that enable the lives you know, that we all have, uh, but do so uh, in a low carbon way. I find it interesting that you're sort of identifying that it's you know, different types of sectors. So pharma or tech or whatever that that is, I guess, benefiting to some extent from the ESG lens, but, but why not the real kind of hard, hard to abate sectors? What's been the barrier there? Yeah, so our research suggests to us that the barrier is in many cases, both the structure of the investment product uh, and how that investment product is put together. 
So the driving force behind a lot of ESG investing uh, is an exclusionary approach, which is to say an investment manager looks at a company, decides whether it's a good investment, then runs a ESG scoring screen and finds this company doesn't meet my scoring criteria, so we are just not going to invest in it. Rather than, say, doing a deep dive into the sustainability plan of a company and saying, does this plan make sense for this business? Does it uh, make sense for the industry? Is it going to advance their goal of decarbonization? They take more of a sort of backwards-looking approach that says, this has been a business that has had environmental challenges or had environmental problems or is a carbon-intensive business, and thus we cannot invest in it. And so the businesses that score well on ESG scores end up in portfolios. Now, we like to say they, you know, they de- neither do harm nor good. Um, and you know, that is not a, a bad portfolio for some people, uh, but it is certainly not an impact portfolio. And when you look at surveys of uh, most investors, whether they be you know, your retail investor all the way up to your institutional investor, one of the desires they have for their ESG allocations uh, is that they have impact. Uh, and so allocating to Apple, although it does no harm environmentally, Apple's carbon footprint is a half of 1% of U.S. emissions, it probably is so small that the the measurement isn't specific enough to really, you know, for it to really matter, that investment doesn't move the needle. Uh, So it doesn't accomplish that goal of having impact. Uh, So the ESG scores and the industry that has grown up around it, uh, we find to be uh, the primary driver uh, of this sort of misallocation of capital. Um, And the end result often is that the companies that need to decarbonize and thus need capital and need to make large investments in property plant equipment um, are sort of being sidelined and their cost of capital increases, uh, their opportunities to attract uh, investors that will be supportive of management, sort of strong hands to hold the shares uh, becomes increasingly difficult uh, and it becomes uh, an even sort of greater challenge um, if the challenge of decarbonizing sort of cement manufacturing or steel wasn't hard enough, now they need to deal with the fact that uh, their investors are sort of fleeing uh, for sort of quote unquote greener pastures that, um, you know, sort of won't help us accomplish the goal. So how far did you go with the report? Does it go as far as what those industrials can do to sort of position themselves more effectively? Yeah, so... In our research and sort of our our conversations with a lot of the ESG scoring companies, what we've found uh, is that the scores, although they are quite mechanical, oftentimes like credit scores, there is absolutely room in the scoring process for the analyst judgment. And so when you see ESG scores, what you're really seeing is both a mechanical process, but also uh, the opinions of the organization. And so much like credit scores, uh, we think management teams need to do a better job engaging with those, uh, those scoring companies. So just like a steel company or a cement company who wants a good credit score so that they can get a lower cost of capital engages with the credit rating agency, they need to engage with, and oftentimes these days they're the same corporation, 
uh, the ESG scoring companies. And in that regard, they need to think about the problem in a slightly different way. Uh, and we've sort of crafted five questions based on our conversations uh, with management teams and with the scoring companies that we really think boards need to be asking their management teams and that the management teams need to be able to answer. Um, and those questions are, what are the material environmental risks that your business faces uh, and how well are you managing them? Have you set compelling sustainability targets and goals related specifically to those material environmental risks? And material environmental risks are of course going to be slightly different for every business. Carbon is going to be one for everyone, but of course carbon is not the only greenhouse gas and it's not the only environmental issue. Water is another issue and you know, so there are other issues. Then the question is, can you integrate those goals and risk understanding into your financial reporting? And if so, what is the impact? And that's probably the hardest question to answer. Then what accountabilities have you set for environmental related performance? And then probably the second most important question after can you integrate it is how are you communicating this to the market, to shareholders, uh, and to these rating agencies? Because that communication is critical and we find it to be sort of a huge gap. People understand decarbonization of automobiles. They understand decarbonization of utilities. You know, it, it's, it's a pretty simple story. And the reason it's pretty simple is because in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively low hanging fruit, despite the fact that it's been a real challenge. Um, but decarbonization uh, is more than automobiles and utilities. Uh, and there is a much less clear understanding amongst investors uh, of the problems and the possible solutions for heavy manufacturing or difficult to decarbonize industries. And it's on those companies to improve that understanding. Uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not a high hurdle. It's just sitting down, sort of drawing out on a piece of paper what the environmental risks are uh, and clearly communicating what they are and that there are solutions and that this is the path to those solutions. Yeah, I think it's interesting. As you're talking, I, I'm sort of imagining that perhaps one of the impediments in a way maybe to how corporates, particularly in North America, have kind of contextualized this for themselves. There has been such, as you, as you and I said, in the run up to this, such a political focus on decarbonization, whereas actually what I think is becoming clear in other regions is there's a commercial, a commercial, a competitive, a future business model opportunity around this. And maybe if that had been the discussion these questions wouldn't feel so laden, you know, with a political intent, which I, I don't think they need to be. I think they could be asked and they could be framed in a way that still gets that company to the outcome, but that isn't quite so politicized. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you in entirety. And I think that, you know, if we look at Europe and we look at the regulatory regime that's been built up in Europe, and we look at the sort of history of regulatory evolution, uh, we find that there is a convergence globally on different regulatory standards. Now, I don't know if Europe's regulatory standards are going to be those uh, that the world converges upon, um, but it seems fairly likely in my mind that the European regulatory approach to environmental issues is. And to the degree that uh, things like the European taxonomy um, for uh, green projects uh, or the carbon tax um, 
become a standard that other countries sort of strive towards or move in the direction of, it becomes much easier to make it a, a conversation about the business side of it. Um, but I think even, even in the absence of that, uh, there's a lot of work around concepts like the cost of carbon abatement or return on sustainable investment uh, that companies can look to. And what you find is admittedly, not every capital investment at the moment is going to have a positive return on sustainability or is going to have a negative cost of carbon abatement. But uh, as we you know, advance technologies, these things will become cost competitive uh, and they will uh, create a value added product. And so I, I think the, the negative car, uh, cost of carbon abatement um, examples are quite interesting. You see things like, you know, very simple things like LED light bulbs. You know, they used to be expensive. Now they very much have a negative cost of carbon abatement, which means abating that carbon from, say, incandescent bulbs literally expands your margins. Okay, so that's a value add. And especially in businesses that are difficult to decarbonize, uh, the ones we're talking about, cement, steel, and chemicals, where the margins are thin the ability to expand margins to any degree is important. And the ability to reduce your cost of capital to any degree is important. Uh, and those good ESG scores and that good plan and good communication of that to the market, it creates investor enthusiasm. Um, these things all sort of support uh, that lower cost of capital and some of them support increasing margins. And so they're quite important for boards to be thinking about. So you mentioned uh, that those were the, the the questions you mentioned before were very much for the board to be asking of the management team. So let, let's put the spotlight on the management team. Then what what's your sense of what those management teams? Again, you know, hard to abate sectors. There are no easy decisions anywhere in those at the moment. What what do they need to be thinking about in terms of ESG to help improve the investability of things that they are looking at? I think they need to be communicating more compelling visions, personally. If you, you look at the way markets have evolved, we've become increasingly short-term in our perspective, which is very problematic for these uh, capital-intensive industries that have very long CapEx cycles and for which uh, a capital expenditure is usually something that reshapes the entire business new steel mill or new chemical facility, you know, it, it is a company-wide endeavor that reshapes everything the company is doing. Um, and so to the degree that these companies continue to look to trying to achieve next quarter's goals um, by just sort of tinkering around the edges with current plant and equipment, um, they won't accomplish decarbonization goals uh, and they won't attract the investors that will be the strong hands that enable them to have a more far-reaching vision about how they decarbonize. So a lot of it comes down to communication of an ambitious agenda, an ambitious goal that is going to reshape the business and improve its not only environmental sustainability, but economic sustainability. That paradigm of improved economic sustainability and improved environmental sustainability are two sides of the same coin. You know, there used to be a time when a business could be economically sustainable, but not environmentally sustainable. 
that window is rapidly closing and your business is sort of, and this is a concept from more from mining and extractive industries, but social license to operate is going to disappear if you are not environmentally sustainable. But to be environmentally sustainable, you also need to be economically sustainable. If you're doing something that you can do for five years, but you can only do it for five years, you might as well not do it. Companies need to think in terms of both economic and environmental sustainability. They need to communicate that that is how they are thinking about their business uh, to shareholders. And they need to communicate a compelling vision for how the business is going to evolve from its current state uh, to a more long-lasting value-generative state in the future. I think one of the most important things as an investor that I would tell management teams of, of either ill is these great big expensive consultant-led uh, sustainability reports that are 100, 200 pages long. That, that's great if you want to do that and you can afford to do that, um, but that is not necessary. That being said, there is quite a clear correlation between reporting data uh, and ESG scores. So to the degree that you can quite literally just report more data, you somehow end up with a higher ESG score. That uh, is a, a bit of a weird outcome, but it is, it is what it is. Uh, so everyone collects a lot of data these days uh, to the degree that you can release it to the public. That's a positive. Large companies uh, need to be engaging more, again, with the organizations who are doing the scoring. Uh, they need to be uh, supporting organizations, third-party organizations um, that help their particular industry craft standards and concepts and ideas around how they decarbonize um, because they are the ones that can most afford to do that. Um, and then the smaller companies, uh, you know, they're really in, a, in quite a difficult spot because their margins are even smaller and and you know their cost of capital has an even larger impact on them. Uh, but what I would say is they need to engage with investors more, and they are the ones who need to be uh, sort of discussing sort of ambitious long-term goals even more, and, and focused on the long term even more than the big companies. Big companies, you know, they can afford to issue bonds. They can afford to make these capital investments that are quite significant sometimes. Um, and they can get away with a little bit more. The small companies need to be the engines of innovation uh, to the degree possible. And, and maybe that means they end up getting swallowed up by a larger company, um, but to the degree that they have a little more freedom because they're a little less institutionalized, um, they uh, can sort of drive the conversation uh, and the larger companies uh, can institutionalize the result of that conversation they need to sort of work together a little bit uh, to sort of tackle different ends of this problem. Pilot projects in say steel and cement are not really something that a small company can do on its own. Uh, you know, building a new steel mill is a you know, billion dollar endeavor. Um, building a new chemical plant, billion dollar endeavor. If you are a specialty chemical company, you can't afford to do that by yourself. Uh, but to the degree that you can partner with a larger organization, um, you can innovate and they can help support you and sort of accomplish that pilot project, let's say, for some new process. Uh, and so there needs to be a little more uh, uh, effort to work together. 
uh, and a little more effort for everyone to sort of try and tackle different parts of this this challenge. Okay, well then, in in wrap up, maybe we go back to those those five questions that you mentioned as being you know really critical topics of discussion between board and management. And and just of those five, like if where do you think what's the single most important or the kind of juiciest part of that conversation? Do you think? Um, it, it's somewhat disappointing, but the actual most critical question that a company needs to be able to answer, and which more companies are not able to answer than we would like, is what are your material environmental needs? So just the ability to answer that question succinctly and to the point. Uh, is not as common as it should be. Um, and there are different organizations that have already laid out, in many cases, what the material risks probably are for your business if you are in steel you know, production or chemicals. Um, so that's not a high hurdle. Uh, it's low-hanging fruit. And every company should just, every management team, every board, everyone should know what your material environmental risks are. Uh, but they don't yet. So tackling question one before you get to any of the other ones is obviously quite important. Um, but then making an effort to try and figure out how that is going to impact your business in the long term from a financial perspective, translating that from narrative into numbers is quite important. Markets work on a combination of narrative and numbers. You tell a story, you put some numbers with it, they either sync up or they don't. So you need to take what is, generally speaking, environmental risk, a bit of a narrative sort of discussion, and translate it into numbers for us, the investors, or for the banks that are providing capital, et cetera. Uh, and then you need to communicate that to the market. Um, and the communication to the market, the communication to shareholders, banks, ESG scores, uh, scoring companies uh, is essential. And it should be a relatively simple and straightforward story. It doesn't need to be, again, that 200-page sustainability report is great, but it needs to be simpler, more direct, and to the point. Um, because oftentimes, while the solutions themselves are quite complicated and quite technical, um, you know, how you decarbonize a cement clinker is not an easy, you know, challenge. Um, but communicating that to the market doesn't need to be the technical and operational explanation. Uh, it can be a simple explanation uh, about what costs are and what the benefits are. Um, and that, that is the frame uh, that I think companies really need to take when communication is. This is economically sustainable. This is environmentally sustainable. If we don't do this, the costs are X. If we do do this, the benefits are Y. Um, and so a straightforward communication of material environmental risk, costs and benefits is the most important thing for management teams right now, I think. And then is there is there a kind of a, a set of questions or a provocation you'd give back to your peers on the investment side of this equation? Is there there's something, you know, we're talking about ESG and it's mechanical, but also influenceable uh, scoring system. You know, that that's something that the industrials can maybe approach uh, more sensibly um what what would you say to the the investors looking at esg as their main way of influencing uh you know the shape of the transition you know when i talk with investors my peers uh the topic that always comes up or the question i always ask when they say oh we think this is a great esg investment is is basically to say uh 
why is this going to create a meaningful environmental impact in the long term? And generally speaking, that's not a question they can answer. They also don't know what the material environmental risks for new businesses they invest in are beyond, say, oh, they emit carbon. Um, and so challenging investors, and management teams should do this, challenge investors to dig deeper, to understand you know, what's actually going on, what is the actual plan for transitioning? How, are, how is this company going to transition? Um, and the ability of investors to, to dig deep and really do research and to, to figure out companies and management teams that are really thinking about these problems holistically uh, it is the most value we can add, but it is not, it is not work that is being done. Um, the deep study of sustainability, the evaluation of the return of those sustainability investments, creating methods for evaluating the return on those sustainability methods. Those are things that investors can do, should do, uh, and frankly, aren't doing. Um, the just sort of ESG score, the outsourcing, no, no investor would say, yes, I outsource my balance sheet and credit quality evaluation to a third party. Well, why are you doing it for environmentalists? Um, they are, in some cases, you know, as significant already and will probably be as significant in the future. So why are you outsourcing it to a third party? An investor like myself can't go to my investors and say, I add value by hiring Sustainalytics. They themselves can do that if they want. Um, so you can add value as an investor uh, by sort of pushing the envelope and the quality of the valuation. Okay, well, thank you so much for being willing to sit down and have a, a talk through this. Um, are we okay to share the link to your report in the show notes? Yes. Great. Absolutely. Uh, it's available. If you go to our website, um, it's readily available on our website as are uh, many other sort of reports we've written on sort of topics about decarbonization in uh, these difficult to decarbonize industries. And the, the website is just massivecap.com. Uh, and we'll add it as well, whether you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes or even through our own uh, website. If you look in the show notes, we'll make sure there's a link to it there too. But Will, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me.